Welcome to the Evergreen Review Podcast. Your host is Dale Peck, writer, professor, and the editor-in-chief of the Evergreen Review. Hi, this is Dale Peck. Today I'm talking with Gene Thornton, author of The Dream of Dr. Bantam, The Black Emerald, the short story The Fountainhead, which was published in the Evergreen Review, and the upcoming novel Summer Fun. We're getting a, we're getting joined by somebody. Say hello. Hello. Oh Hi. my God, what an adorable friend. This is number what nine. What is the name of this cat? His name is number nine. Amazing. Yes. Um, hey, you wrote some books. I want to start... Um, uh, like, I feel like I should go in chronological order, but I'm just selfish. So I want to start with the new one. Okay. Summer Fun. Summer Fun is what yeah, it's yeah. called. It's not yet out. It will be out um, Knockwood on May 11th, uh-huh. 20, 2021, right? So, well, what do you want to talk about regarding, regarding Summer well, Fun? Well, tell me what it's about. Like, you know, um, uh, I, I, I know that it has something to do with Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Um, uh, we, we don't. No, no, it, it has to do with a completely fictional band. Uh, right. A completely <laughs> fictional band that bears, if anything, a coincidental resemblance. I th- any you know, band I, that may or may not exist. And they, I think um, you might have burned that bridge in your Rumpus interview, which I was looking at. Oh, yeah, in, certainly. In, 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 which, in which you refer to it as a total, totally actionable, libelous depiction of Ryan Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> However, that novel, did have a, that novel did have the different title of, I think, Dark Angel. So perhaps you can just say that was a different book. Was that the one that um, Cassie Snyder did, where she did yes, the illustration yes, yeah. of me grafted to Dennis Wilson? Right, right, right. With, yeah. with the caption, it depends which one of us gets the legs. Man, I don't know what, I just <laughs> floating through life, like not remembering these like bizarre and weird things I say, like, but. Um, you are like, you, you, you know, you are frighteningly articulate in interviews. Um, you know, I, I think just just even at ad lib, you know, this probably you know, extent experience is showing there. But like, you know, that's what everyone, you know, in my class talked about the week after you were there. It's like, my God, she like talks like, you know, like everything is for, for her, like in a, you know, in an oh. awe-inspired, not bored way, you know. Oh. And like your interview, you know, in, in the rumpus, was that was that oral or did you do written responses? Gosh, I don't remember. I, that one, I think, was, was written responses, but it was like like eight years ago or something. Yeah, I don't remember it, it was it was it was very very very. You know, if if you had said it out loud, it was it was terrifyingly articulate. Um, oh. You know, even with, with you know an interviewer's edits or something like that. So, but that's always been my experience of you. Um, oh, uh, tell me about this book. Okay, um, so it's about an utterly utterly fictional surf rock band from the 1960s. Right, right. Um, the sort of imp- creative impresario of the band, it's a family band. There's three brothers, the last name is never given, right? Right. The leader of the band, the eldest- um, Let's call them Frankenthaler, Frankenthaler. Frankenthaler, why? I don't know, because it doesn't sound like Wilson. Oh, gosh. I, yeah, well, I didn't come up with the name of a famous artist when I... This is the thing with, like, any of the stuff where, like, you have to, like, skate around, like, I don't know, writing, say we, say this was a novel about, like, Batman or something, right? It's, like, very clear what's being talked about. This is, like, one of the reasons I felt drawn to this project or drawn to not um, push away from any real-world antecedents that the book may or may not have a completely coincidental relationship to, right? was just like out of a certain fatigue about 
look like these people live in our heads, right? There's sort of like a psychic life that these American figures have. And there's something like if I stand in a relationship to these like figures that I'm sort of articulating my world around, um, it feels just silly to like keep that in the strange arm's length way. This is a position that I had, you know, like 10 years ago. I don't think I have that anymore, particularly because like, unlike Batman, these are, you know, this is like an actual family that has dealt with a series of like horrific traumas, right? That this mm -hmm. book may, or may not be a coincidental relationship to. <laughs> so I feel very um, complicated about it in a way that I didn't when I was like, you know, 26 and like, I think even, I think I started this project before coming out or anything. And one has a totally different relationship to one's emotions and mm -hmm. like sense of reality almost before doing that. So I think like- How long ago did you start it? Uh, I was, I started it in 2009, so I would have been 26. The way I've been telling, like the line I'm kind of rehearsing in preparation for this book coming out, right, is like, because I feel a certain apprehension about publishing it after that length of time, right? It's sort of like, oh, I picked out an outfit to the party when I was 26. I know I'm going to be 38 when the book comes out and I get to wear it. And it's like, I just wouldn't make these choices again. It's sort of like, this is something I think I... Um, you invited me to your class to talk about my first book at one point, right? And um, mm -hmm. that was actually a very healing experience because I got to talk about the book not feeling any connection to it anymore as it's author, right? I was like, oh, this is like an intriguing book I've come across, right? I would have made, I would have written it very differently if I was this author, but fortunately, mm -hmm. I feel like I have that relationship with the premise of Summer Fun, but you know, like I'm closer to the actual writing of it. I've like, you know, did the most recent work on it, I guess, in December of last year. Mm -hmm. um, just some final like, oh my God, this is going to go in the world. I have to like finally make decisions about things. Uh, I'm avoiding answering your question about what the print, what the story actually is, right? So it's basically, mm -hmm. there's this surf rock band, there's this sort of like, um, like creative force who's extremely troubled. Mm -hmm. There's like a very intense family dynamic with this um, eldest, like eldest scion of the family is kind of like, discovering certain creative potentials and like wanting to sort of um, find this kind of independent existence. And it's sort of very quickly, um, the patriarch of the family ends up kind of realizing that this is like, there could be some success in this. There could be some avenues towards, and it sort of turns the family into a commercial unit, right? It becomes like a family band. Mm -hmm. There's sort of like brothers, there's like a cousin, there's like neighbors and stuff. And they're sort of become this economic unit and then sort of have to work out all the usual family dramas as an economic unit and sort of all the pressures that's going on. All of this is kind of filtered through, the book is entirely written in letters, which are being written by this um, transsexual named Gala who lives in a New Mexico town called Truth or Consequences. I have been to this town. Have you been to Truth or Consequences? I just passed through it one time. Tell me your impressions of Truth or Consequences. I have absolutely no memory of it whatsoever. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I remember the name. Um, uh, yes. It was on a cross-country trip at the age of 17, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah. I first went to Truth or Consequences when I was 19. The book is set there just with this sort of like elaborate car trip I took like in college, which is basically like, I don't know. I had some idea that I would go to California and like, some like weird like grapes of wrath thing right like work in like the 
like get a job for the summer and like sort of live this like covering like my car died in the middle of Arizona I had to like go to the, walk through the desert to this horrible dairy farm covered in this did happen to you yeah yeah this is real experience right but, like, oh wait there's a dairy farm in Arizona yes it is I remember um 70 miles away from Yuma Arizona because we had to I had to walk past this field of cows that were like buzzing with every fly in the world was like moving over this field of cows, right? And this like powerful smell of like shit, right? And then like, I remember going to this metal door that was absolutely covered, like writhing in flies and pushing it open and this sort of lonely man sitting in this really, really cold room, like absolutely refrigerated room, like a million fans on him. Um, I want to say it's like 15 by 15. And then he's entirely occupying this like three by three square in the corner with like just a bunch of computers and mini fridge and just all this empty space. And I sat in this room for 70 minutes with him, which is the length of time it takes a tow truck moving at 60 miles an hour to come from Yuma, Arizona uh-huh. to pick me up. Well, he told me his life story, which is um, dreadful. Like he and his wife had somehow moved out here for like a job at this dairy farm. They were living in some kind of trailer enclave, like not very far from the dairy farm with, the only other people who lived in their section were people who were just absolutely committed to living outside of society, right? There was no law. He described how they had had set up this sort of open septic tank, like heap of like waste that was just next to the house that was attracting flies. This is like, we were talking about there's flies here. He says, you think there's flies here? <laughs> and he tells me the story about like, I'm saying like, why don't you, complain like why don't you tell them like you're like they can't just have a heap of human waste next to your house and he says like if we complained like it would take the police like 70 minutes to get here from Yuma by which time we would be like buried in this desert right <laughs> and like so it's, it's just like so he was like sort of scrabbling money together to bring his wife and kids to like some place in Texas they really wanted to get to I remember it was a really fascinatingly weird experience. But anyway, that was part of this trip. Before that, I had a very nice time in Truth or Consequences at the um, Riverside Hot Springs Hostel. Mm-hmm. Something about it being this very strong, I guess I want to use the word spiritual experience that I guess meant that the book had to be set there. I don't remember, like I made all these decisions in like 2009. I don't necessarily remember the reason for them anymore other than it felt very important that I write a book that combined transsexuality, truth or consequences, New Mexico, and um, surf rock music of the 1960s in the same frame. Mm-hmm. That these things, I felt like I would find the connection between these things if I just wrote a novel long enough about them. Mm-hmm. And I, you think you yes, found the connection? I, I don't know if I could articulate the connection. I certainly found it. <laughs> I, guess, uh-huh. like, I mean, completing the book is evidence that one found it, right. I guess. Um, did that story about the poor sad man trapped next to the open sewer make it into the novel? I don't think so. The book has been, the book that's going to be published is like, like substantially shorter, like half the length of the, the book that I wrote, the first draft of it. Yes, I, I, I spoke to Mark, our editor, um, mm-hmm. uh, at, at, at some point, and I, and I, I gathered that there were versions, um, mm-hmm. one of which was about 180,000 words, maybe, um, or longer. That was the first version I sent to him. The first, first version of the book is, um, I don't know, it's like 230 something, 230 or 240,000, right? But it's sort of, so I don't, and there were a series of like redactions, like the finished book is about 100,000 words shorter than that, right? It's Uh like, I think 130, so it, 
there's stuff that I wrote in the first version that probably isn't in the last one. I really don't remember what's in what version, but maybe that ended up in one or maybe that ended up, maybe that didn't, I don't remember anymore. How do you feel about that? I remember the first time I met my agent who had read the really long version, right? Like she, like she signed me based on the, the super long one, right? And we were talking about just like how I had come to write about, you know, this genre of music, this time period. And she's like, do you consider yourself like a really obsessive writer? And I started to answer the question about why I didn't think I was an obsessive writer by talking about my some kind of research process I was doing when she like cut me off and says like, yeah, I think you, I, I think I will say yes, I will answer <laughs> Which, yeah, I'll, I'll take that, sure. I'm like an obsessive right. writer, but it was like, um, I think that given that and given the subject matter, specifically like the family that the book may or may not have any sort of completely coincidental relationship to, right? I find like endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. and just consciously made a decision to in- exclude a lot of things that personally fascinate me from the book. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the redaction process was just things that I really, really wanted to do justice. Like if I'm going to write, I, I, appro- I approached it like, I can't use anything directly from like this story that the book may or may not have any coincidental relationship to, right? I can't do anything directly. I want to try to write things that reconstruct the feeling of these events while using as few incidents as possible. Mm-hmm. And basically like I had to, like I originally started by varying like a great number of things, like there are different members of the family than any coincidentally related family members, um, varying like discographies and things like that. And I ended up being able to, I, I feel proud of the degree to which I was able to do it. I probably could have done it better, you know, but trying to find something when you're writing about something that has this sort of mythic status it's like it really is this kind of like weird greek myth about this coincidental band right mm-hmm. like there's some like shades of like prometheus that's going on there's shades of like um just like this strange american tragedy about capitalism and about like families and abusiveness and like mm-hmm. the ways that those cross with queerness in certain ways um felt it felt like there would be a way to do that without writing like Ramana Cliff, right? And mm-hmm. I feel like that, um, you know, whether or not it worked or not, I, I guess is an open question, but that was the goal anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember if I'm answering your question, if I'm just like- Here, I, I was asking you what it feels like to, to not know what, what all is in the final version of the book. Yeah, I feel like a weird, <laughs> I feel like there's a certain level of distancing oneself from a book that one has to do. do you, maybe, do you find this too, right? That like sort of when... I, I mean, I mean, I think every writer plays different games um, uh, with themselves. Mm-hmm. My particular game is, is that when I finish a book, this happened to me with literally every single book I ever wrote, except for Night Soil. Um, okay. uh, I, I basically, like I finish it, I turn it in, um, and then I immediately plunge into another book because I am terrified that I'm going to die and this will be my last book. And people will say, it's a good thing he died because he lost his talent. It's made me no. very prolific. So it's, it's helped me write a lot of books. But I do like, like once I let go of it, you know, because I don't know, you know, my, my early process especially was very much based on tinkering and endless, endless revision. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, it took me four years to write my first book and three years to write my second book. Um, uh, and now I usually spend you know, maybe a couple of years um, on them until, you know, there are a couple of exceptions to that. But, but yeah, I have to really distance myself from the book. And then when there's a book be in between me and, and the book that's come out, then I can go back and look at it and think maybe it's okay and stuff. And then as time goes on, I, I'm able to judge them, you know, um, uh, I, th I think a little bit more objectively, like, you know, for a long time, I never wanted to admit that any of my books wasn't perfect. Um, uh, but now I can admit that some of my books are not perfect um, uh, and all that. Um, so I think we just go through things. But I was just thinking, you know, in, the, in that Rumpus interview, you, your um, friend asked you, you know, what, because I guess it was on the occasion of the publication of Dr. Bantam, um, uh, what it felt like to be the published writer of a real life book as opposed to someone who merely had a manuscript sitting around on their computer or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you said in many ways it didn't feel any different, you know. Yeah, um, I think that's uh, true. Uh, in, in, in that. But um, I also admitted that, yes, that there, there were certain things um, that, that are different about it. And I wondered, you know, I'm thinking also of the editorial process that we went through when we, when we worked on your story, The Fountainhead. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you had more willingness, especially among fiction writers, which you would think that uh, fiction writers would be more malleable to this, but in my experience, actually nonfiction writers um, and reporters especially are much more malleable to editorial suggestions than fiction writers. Mm -hmm. But you yeah. were incredibly like willing to sort of like take an idea and then like, like incorporate that into your mind and then come up with a whole new version of the story. And I think that, you know, we essentially saw three different versions of the story, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that um, uh, in the editorial process. And I would think I would write like, you know, a small paragraph, you know, here's some suggestions, suggestions. And then I would get a different version of the story and I'd be like, wow. Um, so I wonder, you know, if, if you have less of a, I guess, um, less of a precious idea about the sort of sanctity of every word that you put down um, uh, on the page and, and, and them all appearing in print in exactly the way that you first conceived them or something like that. You know, if, if you're thinking of a book, you know, especially a book in the world or a story in the world as a different kind of thing. And if so, what is that thing? I think that um, it is gratifying, I guess, to hear that you think I'm like a malleable writer. <laughs> like I was, I always worry that I'm like, just like, like an asshole or something, but the, um, I feel like, but I feel like there's like a rigidity, right, that goes deep to the core, like with, um, in the way that you're talking about this editorial process, right, like if you, if an editor has said to me, as some have said in the past, right, like, I think if you, can you just like cut these lines, right, or can you cut this scene, or can this character be different, right, I can't just make that edit, I have to like, almost like, reconstruct the universe of the book in a way that will allow that to be the case, which I think was what happened with the Fountainhead edits, right? Because if you remember, I think it took a fairly long time, right? Or at least it felt like it felt like I was like delaying things a lot, maybe, which is not your perception. I think there was a lot of time between the first and second drafts. And then the second yeah. and third drafts, I, I went, went very quickly, um, mm -hmm. I, I thought. And that was partly because also with the first Draft. I mean, we were at a very different stage in Evergreen, and so our our publication process was so incredibly delayed um, mm -hmm. that that I would tend to let things go for months at a time. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, that I will say is like that story is a good one to compare to Summer Fun because they both feel very raw to me, like much more raw than I'm used to publishing. Usually, like Summer mm -hmm. Fun, I have like part of the thing that I felt detached from from it is um, 
talking about, I feel like the two books, uh, the, that story in this book, like express similar ideas about family in some ways, right? In a way that feels like, I feel like part of the particular story of my family, and this is something like, I don't know, I'm trying to think about a lot in my life generally, right? Is the idea that like, you need to like, not leave any traces back to your soul in some ways, right? Like there's something about like- There's a line very similar to that in The Fountainhead. Where is there? You're, yeah, where, I can't remember who the person is, but um, uh, the narrator is very impressed by, um, uh, perhaps it's, it's, it's a lesson that the narrator has gleaned from one of The Fountainhead's books. Um, mm -hmm. Basically like, like, like real adulthood means not revealing anything of yourself. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, to anyone whatsoever, but just being this sort of absolutely cool, gnomic, you know, objective presence in the world. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which is like sort of this like dire, like wish to have no vulnerabilities, right? Sort of like be able to not actually- um, And also not to yourself as well. Well, it's also to move through life without causing any pain to anyone ever or any conflict to anyone ever, which is like a certain way to alienate people that you don't want to alienate, right? That's mm -hmm. like a certain, like absolutely destructive way to move through the world, right? And part of the thing with Summer Fun is it's also a quest for that, right? Like I think that this like, the tragic flaw of this sort of like real world coincidental analog of this, right? Is that like, I'll just talk about the band in Summer Fun, right? There's sort of like an elaborate album called Summer Fun that's being produced by this band, right? Right. And um, there's a certain sense that like, this is going to make the commercial unit of the family less commercially viable, right? It will be like weird and queer mm -hmm. in various ways that it was not before. And this will like cause commercial doom, right? Mm -hmm. So in response to this, like the album will be like, you know, but there's this potential for it to be suppressed. There's this potential for like this sort of vision to be like, okay, well, like I've said an inconvenient thing that this is kind of the ask of people on the other side of like, like it's behind like homophobia and transphobia, right? That it's never like, I wish that you wouldn't exist. It's like, I want you to be totally yourself and accept you as you are. I just don't want you to tell anyone. Mm -hmm. I don't want to have the accountability of you to exist in the world making any ripples, right? This is something that, because of whatever thing like in, like my family story, I guess, is sort of the expectation is just like, try not to exist in any way, right? Yeah. And kind of like, um, so I don't know, it's like very terrifying to write, like it was terrifying to say that just now on a podcast, right? It's terrifying to write a book that like sort of like um, is a clear trace that there's like sort of damaging family systems, right? Like you don't like, you're like telling the family secret. You don't want to do that, yeah. right? So it's sort of, I don't know. And then that dynamic plays out in other ways. So like writing, um, you know, like my early writing practice, I think was just terrible in some ways because I'd write something and then deliberately change everything to have no relationship. Like even this, like thing I told you I was very proud of doing about like, oh, I took this whole story and I made it completely different and like tried to get at the same feelings while giving none of the facts, right? It's sort of like, I think the reason I had the capacity to do that is because I come from like the sort of family dynamic of just like veils and mysteries and deceptions, you mm -hmm. know? And like, um, it it's, is it, difficult it, it, to unlearn. Earlier in the conversation, you said yeah. something about how, uh, you know, the, like, like, like writing stories yoked effects, you know, um, uh, you find difficult and, and, and off-putting, whereas fiction you find much easier. Yet all mm -hmm. the fiction, you know, that I've seen of yours um, uh, or heard about, um, 
Uh, well, no, I, I should, because obviously your new novel doesn't have any relationship to reality whatsoever. Yeah, it's totally, it's totally fictional. Uh, right. 100%. However, in your first novel and in the story, The Fountainhead, which we published in Evergreen, both of those stories um, uh, do seem to have um, a, a lot to do with real world analogs. Um, the Fountainhead yeah. with um, uh, perhaps a writer named Ayn Rand. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that, one, that one's, uh, that one's know, free. In, like, I mean, that's like... Dr. Bantam, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there, there's a, a church organization that, that some people might say bears a passing resemblance to Scientology. Um, uh, and, you know, I could see, I, I'm, I haven't read the book, but I could see how some people might think that your new novel has something to do with, you know, um, yeah. a somewhat obscure, I can't quite think of their name, you know, surf rock band from the 1960s, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. perhaps. So that's true. Uh, are you trying to have your cake and eat it too? Um, uh, be, because it seems like you're always writing about the real world. Um, you're always taking things, um, uh, you know, at, at least in, in your two novels um, uh, and, and in one major short story, um, you know, the, the, the jumping off points would seem to be um, uh, things that actually exist in the world. Well, these sweet things you say to me, um, I think like, yeah, I guess there's, I think the starting point for all of these things, right? And this is maybe something that's changed about my writing practice since then, because I don't think this is the starting point anymore necessarily is like, there was a period of time where I was just reading really, really obsessively. Usually these books start from some act of obsessive reading, right? I was reading very obsessively about Scientology, like this website, Operation Clambake, I may have talked about, where it's like- yeah, in, these, the, in the interview, yeah. Yeah, these like debunkers that are kind of, um, <clears throat> basically have like a real ax to grind. Like some of them have family members who are trapped inside the cult, right? Like some of them have like, um, just like have like for whatever reason just need to deeply debunk this and i had for you know personal reasons i guess related to like related to the story of the fountainhead right i had like a really really extreme need in my teen year like late teens early 20s just to like look at cults and find ways to prove them wrong right mm -hmm. it was like needed to find ways to like think about like yes this like intellectual system is like absolutely not correct and like i need to like read over it again and again to figure out why that was right you think they were proxies for something? Well, that what were the things that I was reading, or the cults that, that that you need to disprove cults um, of which you weren't a member. I don't. I mean, certainly, like with the Fountainhead stuff, I can just like. I mean, I, I can just say pretty straightforwardly that there was like that story pretty much tells the truth in the way that that's very bound up with transness, right? As it expressed in teen years, right? I even think. I mean, I think that story is like almost like almost like nonfiction, right? I mean, that's almost like memoir in some of those cases, right? Where it's like, there's, there's like a thing I read about in that story where it's like literally um, hearing somebody play back my voice. I was in the theater and stuff, right? And like hearing somebody play back a recording of something that I'd done and me thinking like, oh my God, I just sound like a girl, right? Like I need to like, this is horrifying. Cause like I grew up in Texas and like, that's like definitely a thing where I was like, I will be subject to like violence. And this is perhaps a reason why I've been subject to some of the violence, right? Mm -hmm. So it definitely became this thing where I had to like, because of this deep tendency to like, I must leave no trace, right? It became this thing like, I must absolutely obliterate like femininity, right? And then sort of found a way to do that through this book written by a woman about her fantasy of like masculinity. Like Ayn Rand is really fascinating to me. Like she's like her, her political odious, her absolute political odiousness and like role in establishing like absolute wickedness across the world, I think obscures the fact that she's like a bizarrely interesting writer. Mm -hmm. 
I'm thinking about this right now specifically just because I've been talking with a friend about a bunch, uh, about her a bunch lately, but also just because I finished reading The Golden Notebook. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a really fascinating thesis someone could write, specifically discourse about men in Atlas Shrugged and The Golden Notebook. Mm-hmm. There's like more, I, I don't have a thesis for this mystical thesis, but I really would want to read somebody just putting those two books in the same frame, in those two writers in the same frame. I... I... Yeah, I've never been able to penetrate Lessing. I, I, I find the <laughs> writing so lifeless. Um, uh, you know, I think they're similar writers too. It's like a thing, right? You know, I'm, well, I, I only read Atlas Shrugged when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know. My, I, friend, it, my it, friend Clary describes Atlas Shrugged as like the best long book to read in a long bath. <laughs> right. It's like, I don't know if I agree with that, but it is like, I've read it in a bath, right? It's like a great book to read in a bath. Like, uh-huh. Because it's just so like, like the bath, so it's just so indulgent. It's like just like everyone but me is stupid, and like they're they're all gonna die in a train accident or something. It's like oh my god, like this is like like she can just be horrible, so that you don't. Did, I remember when I found out that she was wrong about the origin of the um, dollar sign, um, and I just felt so superior. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the, the origin, the dollar sign probably actually, you know, she, she says it's the, it's the U.S. It's the initials of the United States. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, and in fact, there are very few places where, you know, the, the two bars through the S are connected and, you know, it's not yeah. true. And in fact, it probably comes from, um, I believe it's a serpent around a column, um, uh, mm-hmm. stemming from the original pieces of the markings on the original pieces of eight, um, is yeah. probably the real origin of it. Um, uh, and stuff. Okay. I, just, I felt so superior to her, but I used to love that. Um, there were two things from, from Atlas Shrugged I really loved. And one was that origin of the dollar sign because I thought, well, yes, the U- United States is just that base that yes, it, it would yeah. you know, lend its, its, its monogram to its money, you know, more, more than mm-hmm. anything else. Um, uh, but then the other was, you know, there, there's a scene um, just, it's, it's so quintessentially Ayn Rand because it's, it's, it's just mm-hmm. so self-stymying, you know, um, it, it contains its, its own negation when she talks about the power of smoking and like the Promethean um, power Did you know that I started, probably started smoking. Like I, you know, I like don't think it would have even occurred to me to smoke had I not been like, yeah. Like if and, I like um, die of lung cancer. Like, like, like they knew that it caused cancer cancer. even then, but no, she's <laughs> just going to be like, the symbol is more powerful than the actuality. You know, yeah. um, she's just, it's just so funny that way. But yet um, uh, you, you know, you insist on closing the story, um, giving her her due, you know. Um, well, it's like, I mean, that, she said, be true to yourself. I think there's a thing where in my mind, and perhaps this is just like a completely, I mean, not even perhaps, it's like totally a festival self-justification, right? I had this distinction between people who get into that book when they're like kids, right? Like people, like I got into that book, I think when I was like like 14 or something, which is probably even too old to be respectable. I was like 17, which was way too old, but I'm much older than you, so. I read before, <laughs> I read before Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing was just like, that was one of those crystalline moments for me as, as, as a young person when I realized, oh, we're supposed to hate this person, you know, and he, put, who, he pulls mm-hmm. out the fountainhead and it's like, it's all yeah, like some there. people and matter and some people. Oh, you're an asshole. Like, so Ayn Rand is an asshole, you know? Yeah. And, well, I mean, Ayn Rand is an asshole, right? But it's also right. like, but there's like a specific, like Dirty Dancing is not wrong about this book. It's not what? Well, dirty Dancing is not wrong about this book, right? Like, no, I, no, 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 but that's, that's what I like, you know, it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, there's a story I was, I was told by my old wine merchant when I lived in the city <laughs> that, that after um, uh, 
Paul, Paul Giamatti, you know, made fun of um, Merlot in um, Sideways. Merlot sales mm-hmm. felt like 44% in the US. Like it, it caught the public imagination and, and you know, and kaboom. I, I think that when that guy said that The Fountainhead was the best book ever and you knew that he was an asshole, I, I honestly think that that like was a, a cultural moment that cracked the myth of Ayn Rand mm-hmm. in, in the US. Like, like I think that if you chart her sales and her influence, it all starts to go down after whenever the hell that movie was. I think, yes, you're not wrong, right? Her very, very plainly being tied to like the Reagan revolution, right? Like people, when that was starting to happen, like everybody was like, oh my God, like Ayn Rand's being listened to at last, right? Like she's on Donahue a couple times before she dies. I think that her being yoked to Ronald Reagan, who she hated, right? Because of the Christian parts. Mm -hmm. Um, And her being, like when we're talking about like, people who read it in their teens and people who read it when they're like, you know, like in business school and somebody tells them like, oh, do I, I feel qualms about what I'm doing, right? It's like, no, no, you don't need to read this book. It will make everything okay, right? I think you get very different messages from it depending on when, like you get this sort of, like, I don't know, for like a kid who is from like a pretty intense family dynamic, it says like, your role in this family is to like mediate every conflict, bring only peace and pleasantness to this family and like, utterly vanish and suppress all preferences and desires, right? Reading The Fountainhead is like a very powerful thing. and something that I just can't disown, you know, to that extent, right? I feel that like Ann Coulter, right? Ayn Rand is a very easy conservative to despise. Mm -hmm. Like, because people despise women, right? Like, this, this is why the Doris Lessing connection occurred to me at first, right? Is I was like, in the middle of reading The Golden Notebook, and I wanted to get I don't know why I was, I was like looking up contemporary reviews of it or like some like, I think like Gore Vidal did like a review of one of her later books that talks about it and some other things. And just reading, but I was like, all these reviews of Doris Lessing's work are like the same as the reviews of Ayn Rand's work, right? That mm-hmm. it's like, basically just like, who does she think she is? Like she's writing about these, like these women are like, where do these women get off? They're like so arrogant. These like women suck, right? And it's just like, there's there's something to it, right? Like William F. Buckley to it. Sure. Like William F. Buckley is like, I think far grosser than Ayn Rand, right? Mm-hmm. But is like a better stylist and like not female. Um uh, but mostly not female, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't even think that Ayn Rand's a particularly terrible stylist. I mean, she's very readable, um, uh, which is and perfectly, you know, for, for what she was writing, it was, it was fine. I mean, I, I say this having not looked at her, her books for 30 years, but um, it's just like the hatred of Hillary Clinton, you know, it's- Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. I, I mean, you know, there, there are many things wrong with Hillary Clinton, but God knows that e- even in the Democratic Party, there are far worse people, you know, um, and, and, you know, it was clearly, you know, misogyny was, was a huge component of this. Martha Stewart, you know, it's like you know, a million people, you know, do insider trading every day, but, you know, she was the one that we'd had to make an example of because she had beaten the men at their own game. And so we had mm-hmm. to punish her, you know, you, as, as a woman, she was not allowed to do this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Or not allowed to get away with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, 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 you're absolutely right. Um, the whole Fountainhead story, right, effectively came out of, I wanted to originally do like a close read of Atlas Shrugged, I actually pitched this to the Toast, you know, even the magazine, the Toast, right? Okay, I pitched them with like an article series, basically saying like, what if I did a series of articles, just like reading a, cl- a chapter by chapter close read of Atlas Shrugged, talking about like, how it was received for transness, like a crazy thing to pitch, right? And they were like, the basic story of that sounds fascinating, but can you do it in like like a thousand words or something? And I was like, but no, I can't. So like I 
it, and it ended up kind of morphing into the story over time, right? But in, in preparation for that, I was like, to make that pitch, I was rereading Alice Shrugged, right, in the bath, right? I think this would have been like, I don't know, six or seven years ago or something. And I remember just like, the game to play when reading that book is identifying the exact moment, this is so mean, like identifying the exact moment in which Ayn Rand was prescribed diet pills by her physician. <laughs> because there is a moment at which she just is on a lot of amphetamines. Uh-huh. And sure, her prose becomes bad. Uh-huh. Like, I think that the first third of that book is probably pre-amphetamines. Uh-huh. Also pre, like, like she was involved in this complicated affair with one of her disciples who's like 20 while well, she's like 50-something, right? Uh-huh. It's like, like she had a lot psychologically going on, you know? Yeah. Um, during the writing of that book. But I mean, although the first line of that book is as bad as first lines get. Um, who is Brad the John Galt line is just a terrible line to open with. I just, yeah. I, I just remember encountering that line and not caring whatsoever. I, re- I have the same memory about thinking like everybody's haunted by this and thinking yeah. like, I don't care who John, yeah. like you've not made me care who John Galt is. Yeah. It's like, it reminds me a lot of, um, you know, when I was in college um, or in writing school rather, and I, I wrote a story about someone dying of AIDS. Um, uh, no, I wrote a story in which someone died of AIDS. I, I should say that, but you don't really see that. And there's just someone very sad. And someone in the class said, just very frankly, he's just, just like, I don't want to sound like a terrible person, but, but we don't know who this person is. Um, uh, and, and, you know, all we know is that he is a fictional creation because we're reading fiction. You know, why do we care? You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's like people die all the time. If you want to make us care about them in fiction, you're going to have to tell us something. And it's the same thing. It's like, you know, later on in the story, I come to care about John Galt. I mean, is, doesn't John Galt invent a perpetual motion machine, I think? You yeah, know? he definitely um, does. Right. You know, I mean, that's interesting, right? You know? Um, I don't know. Like, this is what was weird to me about thinking about the fact that I attempted to, like, not be trans by reading Ayn Rand, right? And, uh-huh. like, because it's, like, literally this sort of, like, sex fantasy about what men are written like it's Ayn Rand's like sex fantasy of men right and I feel like oh I should definitely try to do that and that's like that's weird to me like thinking about John Galt as being like like all these men are like deeply unreal right oh yeah yeah I mean literally in his case he invents you know a machine that you know breaks the laws of thermodynamics but yet you know when I think back to reading the book I I I didn't care a lot about the book but I took a basic positive message from it you know as a 17 year old closeted kid in Kansas um, which is be true to yourself, right? You know, that, that yeah. like, like I, I, I was never so egotistical that I could have ever believed that, that my own wishes were more important than anyone else's in the world. And so mm-hmm. that message yeah. just kind of rolled off of me. But the basic message of just like, you know, there's, you, you know, you are unique. Um, uh, what you do is special. Um, uh, you should care about what you do um, because you are putting mm-hmm. it out there in the world and all that. I mean, um, you know, I, most of the people that I knew that read Ayn Rand you know, we're nerds, you know, we're, we're not like, like super successful, super popular kinds of people. Like, you know, that, that guy in, in Dirty Dancing, you know, who was getting his MBA somewhere, you know, like, 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 I think it's, I think it's the people who read the book as kids that actually, you know, or read Ayn Rand as kids that actually can get a positive message from it, you know, because you're just not thinking about the deep economic consequences, you know, of, of, yeah, of yeah, totally. like, at that point. And so you read it emotionally. Um, uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, and, and then that kind of like simple message comes through there. And it's only later on that you plug everything into that. And, you know, when you begin sort of decoding, you know, the weirdnesses of, of 
the way that her supposedly independent women are always worshiping at the heels of these kind of, you know, Aryan, you know, geniuses and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Like when I think about like modern Fox audiences or something, there was this book I worked on as a freelance editor once that was by like a Tea Party person. And he was plainly writing, he had played, like he plainly, like the book he had read was like Alice Shrugged, right? Mm-hmm. He was doing this like self-published book that was going to be like his like update of Alice Shrugged for like the 2012 election or something, right? And he talks about this sort of process of like conservative indoctrination, which is really haunting to think about now, right? Because I remember like growing up in Texas, like I have some understanding of that just because I remember being like... Were you, did you grow up in Austin? I grew up in uh, near Dallas. Oh, okay. So not in the liberal enclave. Yeah, yeah, no, but it was like, yeah, it was like this weird thing with like my family's sort of general secrecy. There was like this idea that like, oh, we don't, like you don't necessarily tell people your politics. You're sort of like the secret, like these Texans will like be against, be against us in this way. Um, which they're still like, which is sort of frustrating in these times, right? But um, there was definitely this idea, like I first heard about Ayn Rand at school, right? From like a teacher who is like, you know, was the true believer conservative who had like given everybody Anthem, like her super short book as an assignment basically to try to like expose us to conservative ideas. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a way that she sells conservatives, not in that shrugged so much, but in the fountainhead, I think is like, I think now it's the case that progressives make against like centrist Democrats, right? That it's like these people are paying like bizarre lip service in hypocrisy, right? And saying like, if you I don't know. It, it was a thing that made sense to me when I was like 14 and then realized at like 50 and like, wait a minute, this is all like garbage, right? Because you just don't know enough about the world. It's like very different if you're like 25 and you come to this. But the way I took it was always like, as a deeply, deeply, deeply codependent person, right? If you do not value yourself, then you're like ill serving other people, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're not able, to, you're not able to help people. You're not able to be good to other people. Mm-hmm. as you're sort of like undermining yourself. I don't think that's wrong, you know, but it's like definitely a message that came to me through it's, like a it's the message of RuPaul's Drag Race after all. Is it the message um, of RuPaul's You watch Drag Race? No. Every, literally every single episode closes with RuPaul saying, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell can you love somebody else? Can I get an amen? Well, she yeah, RuPaul, I guess RuPaul and like, like Howard Rourke, you know. Like, like, like 12 seasons, she has said that at the end of every single episode. Yeah, it's not... It's not wrong, you know, like- No, it's not, no, 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 no. I adore RuPaul. Um, fracking and all, I don't care. Um, <laughs> like RuPaul is, 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 is someone who got famous being, you know, a black drag queen, you know, God bless her. We should all worship the ground she walks on. Um, I'm very unobjective about her. <laughs> I reserve judgment, but- What? Know. I reserve judgment. I don't know, I don't have like a strong anti-case or anything. I just like, it's exciting to talk about like teenage experiences of this like it evil is, yeah. author, you know, like- yeah. Um, you know, you do remind me um, uh, just how, yeah, how, how much one continues to mind that stuff, you know, um, mm-hmm. all, all one's life. Like, I, I still write a lot about teenagers, but I, I think that I th- I'm thinking about them very objectively um, and all that. But I'm like, I'm not. No, it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's different feelings, you know, from, from, from my adolescence that, that, that are just mm-hmm. sort of being exploded into narrative situations, um, yeah. you know. Tell, tell me there's other modes than like writing other feelings of adolescence, right? I mean, like, tell me there, tell me there I mean, is. That, that, that answer is fairly self-evident in your own work. 
you know? Um, uh, I, I mean, you know, the two pieces I've read both, both feature, you know, well, one features an adolescent narrator and how old is Julie? I can't remember now if she's a teenager she's or slightly older. She's 17 years old. She's 17, yeah. Um, so they both are adolescents, you know, in mm-hmm. the work. But yet, obviously, there's so much else going on, you know, in, in, in the stories. But I mean, they're, they're essentially stories about, I, you know, I mean, I, 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 identity. And I don't mean, you know, trans or lesbian identity in Julie's case, um, you know, whatever category she, she occupies. But but just, you know, I mean, the the, the kind of grand question of, 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 you know, what does it mean to be a person? You know, what does it mean to have a consciousness, you know, in, in, in the world, um, just mm-hmm. inflected through very personal experiences. And, and yes, those two stories happen to be about a- a- adolescence, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's so far from the only thing that, that contains it, but mm-hmm. you know, at the, at the same time, you know, libidinal energy is, is, you know, one of those things that, that makes, novels run so you know it's 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 never bad to tap into it and you know i i don't think you know i don't know um uh you know as 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 a cis dude you know i like we're never more libidinous than 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 we are as teenagers um uh and, and all that i've heard that women you know they, they they carry it through their life you know i'm i i'm definitely not as horny as i was at at, at 18 um now and you know so tapping to that energy makes makes sense to me. Yeah, I'm thinking about that with respect to transness. I don't know. I don't know, but I like the idea of like libidinal energy being one mix of energy of like a energy portfolio that a novel might run on, right? Like it's like just as you want to mix some like you gotta have some good old like fossil fuel that's like you know like tapping the planet in with your renewables or something. Like yeah. have this sort of like Dennis Cooper. Um, uh, when he blurred my first novel, he said it had a promiscuous narrative energy, which um, is like, I think it's one of the two or three things that someone has ever said about my work that I remember because, you know, it's not something I had thought about. And I'm like, you know, that sounds clever, but it's actually really smart. And it actually taught me some, you know, it, it like, like, like it, it pointed out something about my work I didn't know um, and that I was able to sort of tap into more consciously afterwards as, as, as a result, you know. Yeah, I feel I feel the same relationship. Say the Eileen Miles blurb, the Dream Doctor Bantam Ray, and described it as lush and trashy, mm-hmm. and like like she used the words lush, trashy, and mean, and like messy. I think, and I remember thinking that, just feeling like okay, that's my like sigil now. Is like mm-hmm. like for a period of time. Like it's it's just really nice when somebody sort of reaches out and it's just like, this is true of you. Yeah. I'm adding like I'm making you the like. The Duchess of Trashy or something, right? Uh, should we end on that note? <laughs> we can end on that note. Well, thank you, Jean. Jean's book, Summer Fun, will be released soon, hopefully this summer. Mm-hmm.